Coming to you from the Philadelphia area, this is the Westchester Church Podcast. So I begin in Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 12. In these days, Jesus went out to the mountain in order to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day had come, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealots and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Well, if you're anything like, like I am, you may have also spent more than half of your life reading a passage like this, and just glossing right over what is happening, and just kind of shrugging and moving on to the very next verse. And yet, do we realize just how utterly abnormal this is what Jesus is doing here. And you see, when we look very closely at the details of Jesus calling his original disciples, his first followers, I mean, what a diverse mishmash of people this really is. Now, what a lot of us know about his 12 apostles, his 12 disciples, is that a lot of these guys are working class men fishermen by, by trade. And to be a fisherman in, in Palestine in the first century, I mean, this was very hard-earned money. I mean, this was a life of toil, where it was either a feast or a famine occupation, where oftentimes you would find that it was an industry that was routinely unprofitable. And so Jesus calls at least four, and yet many of us believe at least six or seven fishermen out of his original 12. So it looks like half of the 12 disciples, more than half, had been working class as as fishermen. And yet notice what else Jesus does, though. Because as we read in other gospel accounts, Jesus' search for his original apostles, in that search, it takes him to all of all places a tax collector's booth, where of all people he approaches Levi, a.k.a. Matthew, and he says, hey, Matthew, what's going on? I would like you to be one of my disciples. How about you come and follow me for the next few years? Well, this is incredible because tax collectors were universally viewed as the traitors of Palestine. They were looked down upon as these agents of corruption and of betrayal to their own nation because they had this reputation of of cheating and defrauding their their own people so that they can, can pack Roman pockets with even more cash than they already had extracted. Tax collectors were absolutely despised. And yet as we pay very careful attention to the detail of one of the very last names in this list of original disciples, we see yet another Simon making an appearance, but it's not Simon Peter, is it? This is an entirely different person who is also called Simon a Zealot. 
What in the world does that mean, right? Well, here's what we know about the Zealots. Zealots were among this, this very fanatical Jewish political organization that was absolutely obsessed with over, overthrowing the Roman governments. If you were a Zealot, you would... I mean, you, you were more than willing to not just bleed, but to even die for Jewish prominence. And yet, what is also very interesting is that there might be more than one zealot in this group. It's very likely, if you look at the name Judas Iscariot, that name Iscariot means Judas from Kyrioth. Kyrioth was, was a city about 20 miles outside of Jerusalem, where, of all places, it was the very headquarters of, of the zealots. And so it's very likely Judas Iscariot may have also been among those zealots. Well, not very long after this, the um, zealot party very quickly turned into straight-up assassins. They were known of as the dagger men, where if they viewed you as a threat to their purpose and to their agenda, they would just walk up and stick you. Walk up to another guy, stick him. Go to the other side of town, go up to another guy and stick him. And it was the um, zealots and the dagger men who were largely responsible for, for this huge revolt, which eventually led to the AD um, 70 invasion and the fall of Jerusalem yet again. But notice that it was this organization that Jesus calls one, if not two, of the original 12 apostles from. I mean, it's where they came from. But here's where this gets very interesting as we read a text like this. As these 12 men come together for the very first time, officially as the 12 disciples and as the apostles, these guys would have absolutely detested each other on, on sight. Because if you're a working class fisherman, and you see a tax collector walk inside the room. That is the guy who, is, who has been cheating you. Wetting his beak out of money that you don't even have yet because you, you haven't caught any fish in, it in a long time. And if you are a tax collector, you are looking at a zealot as, what is that guy doing here? Because he is a threat to my livelihood and to my national security. And so you better believe that as these guys come into a room for the very first time, there was strong polarizing opinions about the others. So as we step back and we see very carefully, I mean, just notice what Jesus is doing here. That when Jesus chooses his 12 disciples, notice that he does not pick them, you know, he does not pick a bunch of religious Stepford wives from the same religious institution who had everything in common already. But rather, after spending an entire evening in sleepless prayer, Jesus carefully chooses 12 men from three drastically different social environments who need to learn one day how to have all things in common with the other. And so what we find with this original group of, of Christians, I would say, is you've got ultra right over here and you've got ultra left over there. And so, I mean, imagine how insanely comical it was as Jesus gets all of these guys in the same room together. And Jesus is like, all right, you guys, let's be a family who loves each other more than life itself. Let's bring it in. Family on three. One, two, three. Family. Oh, 
family. No, I mean, all these guys are looking at Jesus and looking at each other like, what in the world is going on? I mean, is this guy not completely out of his mind doing this? We could very well look at Jesus and say, I mean, <laughs> this is what you spent all night putting together? And yet, as we look at the original 12 apostles, we are reminded, though, and, and especially as we look around at any church that we have ever been in, what we see is that these people do not belong together. I mean, this is not normal, people. This is a motley crew coming together. This is the island of misfit toys. As Jesus brings his original 12 apostles together, as he adds people to any church that has ever existed on the face of this earth, what is he doing? He is combining oil with water. He's merging water with electricity. He's bringing bloods together with crypts. He, he, is, he has a can of gasoline and he is pouring it all over the ground and he starts lighting a match above it. I don't know if you've ever known anybody where everybody in the room is ordering a pizza at work or, or in the family. And, and every now and then there is one person who wants to put pineapple on their pizza. It's like, wait, what? You want to put pineapple on your pizza? That doesn't go together. And yet as Jesus puts his original 12 apostles together and his church, Jesus is the Savior who likes to put a little pineapple on his pizza. Again, we, we, we look at the apostles and we say, these 12 do not belong together. Jesus looks at this motley crew mishmash and what he says is, this is my dream team. He looks at the Westchester church and he says, this is my family. This is my dream team who is to shine and to be salt in this world. Well, a few years later, Jesus is in Gethsemane praying and he knows that he's just about to go to the cross. And Jesus knows it in his bones that when I leave and when I return to, to um, heaven, these now 11 guys cannot be 11, and they cannot be three groups. They've got to be one. And so that is exactly what Jesus prays for from the depths of his soul. Father, I pray that they may be one, just as you are in me and I am in you. Let them be one, O oh Father. And yet the most beautiful thing is, is that as we hear his prayer continue, what, what we hear Jesus saying is, he starts praying for Lori and for Amanda and for Jerry and for Ruth. He, he says that I do not pray for, for my apostles alone, but I also pray for, for all of those who will one day believe in me through the apostles' word. My brothers and sisters, he's praying for the Westchester Church. He's praying for the extant Church of Christ. He, he's praying for every community of faith who dares follow Jesus Christ. And we think about all of the times where we prayed our, our um, hearts out. And Jesus answered many of those prayers with a resounding yes. And how wonderful that had felt to us. And now we see Jesus in this one instance. Jesus is the one who is praying his heart out. And this time there is a prayer of Jesus's that is to be answered by us. 
And that prayer is, let them be one, so that the world might believe that you really have sent me. And the question is, of any logical-minded person, okay, Jesus, how? <laughs> I mean, how in the world are you going to get people as diverse as this to be one? Not that long ago, I had discovered that there, there are 40,000 different denominations in Christianity alone. Jesus prayed for one. We've given him 40,000. No, Jesus says, I want them to be one and only one. And I mean, even as we look at our own congregation here at Westchester, I mean, look at how gloriously diverse we are as a church. Because we've got Southern Bells over here. We've got Arizona. We've got Spanish Harlem in the house. We've got the greatest generation. We've got baby boomers. And of all things, you've got a preacher who is a millennial. God, help us. We've got black and we've got white. We've got Republicans and we have a few Democrats. I mean, this is by far the most diverse church that I have ever seen, and, and I've gotten around in the world. See, this is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And yet again, anybody who is an outsider, who has never set foot in, in a worship service, could very well look at us and say, what is going on? These people do not belong together. Especially when we are more divided as a nation than we may have ever been in our history, perhaps. I mean, we're living in a time where we can't even agree on the smallest thing. It's, it's like one group says we're going to wear masks or we're not going to wear masks, and the other says, no, we're going to do the opposite of whatever they are doing at all costs. We refuse to be one with them, however it looks like. And we, we all experience this, I'm sure. You see, it's not easy to have unity and to have harmony with people who don't come from where we come from, with people who don't look like us or who don't agree with us in many regards. But what this message is about this morning, my friends, is, is here's how. For anybody who is curious and who is desiring to answer the prayer of Jesus for, 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 for um, a church of oneness with a yes, Jesus says, here's how you do it in his word. First of all, how we answer his prayer for unity with yes is we, really it all begins with answering his prayer by inhabiting the mind of Christ. We've got to inhabit the mind of Jesus Christ. Now we marvel as we read about the original Christians in the book of Acts, where it says on a couple of occasions, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, that they, they were praising God with one heart, with one voice with one spirit, we say, how in the world did they pull that off? And I believe with all of my heart that the answer lies in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is giving the um, Philippian church, and he's educating them, here is what the Christian life is all about. Where he begins in chapter 2 of Philippians, starting in verse 2, and and um, as we notice very carefully, what he says is, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
Then he says, here is how it's done, Philippians. Here is how it's done, Westchester. Where he says, do nothing, and I mean nothing from selfish ambition or conceits, but rather in humility count others more significant and important than yourselves. He adds and he elaborates, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And then the punctuation is, have this mind also in yourselves, which is also yours in Christ Jesus. And as Jesus puts his band together of apostles, and as Jesus puts his band together as the church here or, or wherever else, he takes a couple of classical violinists here. He complements that with a country western singer. He pairs the country western singer with a gangster rapper from Compton. He adds the gangster rapper from, from Compton with, with a baritone from a barbershop quartet. He brings in a guy who plays the oboe. Why? I don't know. But he brings in a drummer. And then lastly, he brings in a couple of heavy metal guitarists who have been known to bite the heads off of live animals, bats and, and birds and doves. And we just look at this lineup and at this band and we're thinking this is going to be the most awful racket that we've ever heard in our lives. Those, those um, styles and those sounds do not agree with the other. And I mean, we would expect out of all of these conflicting styles and personality clashes and social differences, it would be awful. But what the world experienced in the first century, though, is that somehow in some way, when this mishmash Motley Crue church got together, somehow, they don't know how it, it ever happened, but they blended together in perfect harmony. And it was the most beautiful music that this earth had ever heard. And I believe really the secret to that is that they inhabited the mind of Jesus Christ with regard towards one another. I believe that when we start inhabiting the mind of Christ, what our attitude becomes is that I am on this planet to love the Lord with all of my heart, with all of my soul, mind, and with all of my strength. That I've been put on this planet to love you, to serve you, and to honor you above honoring me. And I would say that as long as human beings have roamed this crazy world, our greatest struggle is only loving us, or only loving those who love us. Is only caring for the people who remind us of ourselves or, or who agree with everything that we say or who laugh at our jokes. And yet as Paul goes on to say, though, what the mind of Christ is is sacrificial because Jesus, even though he was in the nature of God and, and had divinity in him, he emptied himself and he, he became a servant all the way until it cost him his blood on the cross. And yet what this is saying to you as well as to me this morning is that there are a lot of deaths that we have to undergo on a lot of crosses. Such as the cross of I'm always right and you're always wrong. On the cross of I am better than you are. 
We've got to undergo a crucifixion on the cross of that attitude that, that screams, it's all about me and it's not about you. You see, anyone who has ever had the mind of Christ learns that, secondly, we don't have to play the game anymore. We do not have to play the game anymore. What do you mean by that, David? Well, what I mean by that is that we live in a world that, that, that works so hard to, to enforce us and to pigeonhole us into saying that, you know what, you've got to pick a side. Either you will be this, or you are going to be that. Either you will be one of us, or you're going to be one of them. Either you will be right, or you will be left. But you've got to pick a side. And I think one of the biggest mistakes that we have ever made as a humanity is that so often we fall into the the rabbit hole of looking for our fulfillment and for our guidance in the world and of the things of this world. In political parties, oftentimes, this is how it happens. Where it's one thing that we vote, but it's an entirely other thing to become that political party and to now look for our identity in it. See, however we fall into that rabbit hole, that, that is a deception that we undergo. Where it gets in our minds that, you know what, there, there are only two choices that we can possibly make. There's only two kinds of ways that we can go in this world. It's either elephants or it's donkeys. And yet that's not entirely true according to Jesus. Jesus is saying you don't have to, to remain in the confines of your own individual tribes, of your own agendas with these strict lines drawn in the sand. You don't have to live that way anymore. And what's so amusing in the Gospels is that we actually tried to strong-arm Jesus into picking a side. Jesus, are you going to be one of us or are you going to be one of them? We all remember one occasion as, as there's a woman who's caught in the very act of adultery and they are wanting to maybe stone her. But... As it all boils down, really what the choice that they are giving to Jesus is, Jesus, are you with, with Moses or are you with Caesar? Which one is it? And Jesus' answer to that question is, neither, none of them. Here's something better. He who is without sin, let him be the first one to cast a stone and then woman, go and sin no more. That is what Jesus' answer is. Well, a little bit later on, they try to get him again with a trick question. Jesus, should we pay a tax to, to Rome and to Caesar? Really, the choice that they are presenting with, with Jesus is, are you with Israel or are you with Rome? Are you one of us or are you one of them? And Jesus looks at them and smirks, I imagine, and he says, neither. I'm with neither. And we all remember how Jesus is speaking about how difficult it is for rich people to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And he says that with, with man and with the world, it's impossible. And I believe this also applies to how we have unity in the church. 
If we try to unite upon political parties, that is never going to work. If we try to unite on our own individual agendas, opinions, what we think is good, what we think is bad, outside of the will of God, we're never going to unite on anything. And yet, if we do it with the power of God, if we inhabit the mind of Jesus Christ, Jesus says, it's impossible with with man, but it's possible with God. I mean, we live in a world that says, are you liberal or are you conservative? Are you one of us or or are you one of them? Do you find your fulfillment in donkeys or do you find your identity in the elephants? And the answer resoundingly from the Christian is neither. Our answer is, well, it's Jesus. Jesus is the answer to that question. We don't have to play the game anymore. And yet, lastly, the way that we continue to have unity as a church, and and I believe that we have unity as a church this morning. If we want to continue having that unity, we, we most importantly, here's the most important aspect of this, is that we have got to inhabit somebody else's experience. And this obviously is the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, this is, this is the very heart This is the crescendo of the Sermon on the Mount. And yet, more importantly, though, this is the law and the prophets summarized. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12. This is what it's all about. Where Jesus says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do it also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. And then in that context, Jesus says, enter through the narrow gates. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And there are so many people who enter by it. He says, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who ever find it are few. You see, this is so much more than just merely doing to other people what we think maybe what what ought to be done. But rather what the golden rule is, is a summons. Jesus is summoning us to immerse ourselves in the situations, in the perils, in the dilemmas of other people. And I mean, this is not easy. This is something, you know, it, it just really requires a lot of thought. It forces us to step outside of our them world and to cross over the line and to put ourselves in the experience of our thems or our uses rather than in ourselves. And so how this looks like is, as we consider our brother Rob Hansen, who's been in the hospital for almost a month now, he's got non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and he's in a world of pain. What this means is that we get out of our nice clothes and we psychologically are now in his hospital scrubs, in his gown, in his hospital bed. We imagine how it feels to go through chemotherapy. We're lying in bed and we no longer have most most of our hair and and all over our body is just explosions of excruciating pain. Then we ask ourselves, then and only then, how would I like to be treated if that was me? 
Jesus says, whatever the answer to that question is, do it, O Christian. It means that we psychologically leave the confines of our home and we mentally step into a, a homeless soup line that reeks of urine and marijuana. And we put ourselves in the situation of a homeless man who can't find work, of a person who has been ostracized his whole entire life, who, who might have um, mental illnesses. And we ask ourselves, if that was me, how would I want to be treated in that situation? As we watch the news, rather than going on, on a rant about illegal migrants, it means that we actually put ourselves in the shoes of a Mexican woman who is crossing the Arizona border illegally. And rather than jumping to a conclusion, we ask ourselves, why is she doing this? Why, why is she risking her life bringing her children into this country? Sometimes people do cross over to commit crime. That happens all the time. And yet we might be surprised though sometimes the answer to this question is, oh my goodness, she is fleeing injustices in her country. She wants to give her three-year-old daughter a better life than she ever dreamed of having, even if it cost her her blood. As a white man, what this means is, is that I, I leave my car and I sit down in the bus as a 25-year-old black man who I know, who less than 20 years ago, he was the lead singer of, of um, a Christian singing group, a cappella. And he's just driving a tour bus going to their next concert so that they can minister to people when a police car pulls them over. And just minutes later, he's got an army of police officers cocking rifles right in his face. You put yourself in that man's shoes and it's like, oh my goodness. That first officer saw a very big, strong, young black man driving a bus. And it's like, wait a minute, why is he driving a bus? Clearly he is harboring drugs inside this bus. And so let's stick rifles in his face. Make it look like we're about to shoot him like a dog in the streets. You see, this is what happens when we inhabit somebody else's experience. And there was a moment in our very last presidential election that I absolutely love. I watch it again and again. I don't know if you remember this, but in 2016, at the very end of one of the presidential debates, there was a man who had surprised Trump as well as Hillary Clinton. As he asked them, would either one of you name one positive thing that you respect about the other? And I mean, it... it it makes me smile to this day even speaking about it because their demeanor completely changed. Suddenly they began smiling at one another. Suddenly fists started loosening and rocks started hit, start, you know, hitting the ground left and right. And Hillary Clinton starts complimenting Donald Trump's family as she says, as a mother and as a grandmother, I respect his children. It comes around to our president, Donald Trump, and, and he was so down to earth in his response. He was even gentle in the way that he spoke as he said that, that I will say this about Hillary Clinton. 
In his own words, he says, she does not quit. She, she is a fighter, and I respect that. And I mean, what a breath of fresh air seeing something like that is. And I, I understand, listen, I mean, I understand that a presidential a debate is not meant to be, you know, one never-ending hug fest. I'm not saying that. But the reason why that was such a beautiful moment is because these two um, vicious opponents for, for one and a half glorious minute began humanizing their enemy. And they stepped over the line and they immersed themselves in the other person's life. And to such a greater degree as we live the actual Christian life. You see, the more that we learn to inhabit the mind of Christ, the more we will begin stepping in and inhabiting the experiences of our them. Because that's what Jesus did after all. Jesus' encounters with, with um, other people are, are really just as diverse as his apostles in his church. I mean, Jesus would sit down and have meals with rich men. And he would stand and speak openly with a Samaritan woman. He would go to the house of a Pharisee and he would reach out and he would touch lepers of all people. And in all of this, what we see and what the example given to us is as we seek the mind and the heart of Christ is that rather than sprinting away from, from other people, demonizing them with dehumanizing language and vitriol, Jesus sprints as fast as he can to these other people. And here's the kicker of the Sermon on the Mount. Is that the narrow gate is not merely obeying the gospel. And the narrow gate is not merely winning a debate about the necessity of baptism. That's not what it is at all. But notice how do unto others, that is the narrow gate that Jesus is speaking about. And so what Jesus is saying to us this morning is that most people live in an us against them world. What Jesus is inviting us to is that if you're my father, you're not going to live that way anymore. And so what he's saying is inhabit the experience of your thems until your thems become an us at heart. And so as we bring all of this to a close this morning, I just want to ask you and I also want to ask me myself, how diverse is your friendships? How diverse are the people that you associate with, who you go out of your way to learn to get to know at work? You see, if we surround ourselves only with the people who look like us and who already love us, that is a very distorted utopia that we're living in. Jesus has a real utopian mind, and it's called the kingdom of heaven. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, where, where, where all these people of all nationalities and backgrounds and broken yesterdays come together and they form a beautiful, spiritual, melting pot family, motley crew mishmash. So what I want to invite you and I to this week is very simple. First of all, we have got to sit with God. I want to challenge us to pray entire prayers for the blessing 
of whoever we dislike in this world. Once we have sat down with God, we have got to move closer to our thems or to our others. So what this means is that if you are a Democrat, reach out to, to a, um, a Republican. If you are a Republican, reach out to a Democrat. If you are younger, speak to somebody who is much older than you are. If you're much, much older, go to another person who is much younger than yourself. If you're white, go to a person who's black. If you're black, have a conversation with a Latino, with, with a person of Chinese ancestry, and as you sit down with them, this is not an opportunity to regurgitate all of the talking points from, from our favorite news network. But rather, all that we do when we speak to them is just listen and inhabit their experience. And then go to another person, and another person after that, and another person after that. And we will find our, our circle and our network becoming more and more and more of a melting pot. I close with this thought this morning. As we go to an ancient Corinth house church assembly, where we step inside a house and we notice seated at the table with us is a Jewish man. Seated next to him is a Gentile woman. Seated next to him is another Gentile man, but he used to date men once upon a time. Seated next to that guy is a Samaritan servant girl. Seated next to her is a guy who used to be the town drunk two years ago. Seated next to um, him is a woman who just seven weeks ago was a prostitute three blocks away. And the preacher who is bringing a message from God's word, his name, Saul of Tarsus, or as he refers to himself as, the worst of all of the sinners. The guy who once killed and imprisoned Christians. This is not the Corinthian Church of Christ. This is the motley crew church of Christ. This is a resounding, emphatic yes, yes, yes to that prayer of Jesus that I want my church to be one heart and one voice and one spirit. And yet all of those people are long gone and they're dead. And now it falls on us, brothers and sisters. We have a responsibility to continue to answer the prayer of Jesus for one church with an emphatic resounding yes. With man and with the things of this world, it's impossible. It's never going to happen. And yet, with the love of God emblazoned in our souls and with His Spirit motivating us and with us inhabiting the other's experience as we inhabit the mind of Christ, this church is going to stay one until Jesus returns.